Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the Satanic Panic, or that time throughout the 80s and early 90s in the US where allegations of SRA or Satanic ritual abuse were spreading. There were mass media scares, a ton of false accusations, and the whole thing still remains a pretty controversial topic to this day. Also, as a content warning here that we will be going through mentions of child abuse, even though, well, most of the cases mentioned didn't exactly happen. Even so, if that topic bothers you, I'd recommend clicking away. Perhaps this is not your episode today. With that being said, let's jump right into it, and we'll start with the history and causes of this Satanic Panic. Now, let's get this cleared out immediately. Like there's been multiple moments and instances throughout history of Satanic Panic-like events occurring throughout history, the Salem witch trials being one of them. But we're not going back that far into the panic around the devil, witchcraft, and supposedly evil acts today. Instead, our journey starts in the 70s with fundamentalist Christianity. Fundamentalist Christianity, to put it simply, is a very strict literal interpretation of the Bible. The term fundamentalism was adopted more widely in the 70s when it became a powerful political and economic force. According to the book, The Satanism Scarce, the new fundamentalism was led by symbolically and to a degree, literally, by the Reverend Jerry Falwell. Falwell was a televangelist who also established the Moral Majority, a political organization in 1979. Although it disbanded 10 years later, the Moral Majority helped establish the religious right as a force in American politics. Fundamentalists of Protestant, Catholic, and Mormon persuasion found that they shared common interests and could together work to achieve joint political goals. Thus, it became easier for the religious right to take a united stand on emerging concerns, such as rock music, censoring books and schools, as well as Satanism. On page seven, the book, The Satanism Scare reads, The fundamentalist infrastructure regularly promotes warnings about the satanic menace. Shelves in religious bookstores are filled with titles on satanism and major televangelists warn of Satan's growing threat. Another contributing factor to this was the ACM movement or the anti-cult movement. And hey, we're anti-cult here, so, and I've exposed cults before, so I think the goal of getting young people out of cults is an admirable one. However, this book explains that fundamentalists would use this very dark reality of brainwashing and cults as a way to justify this movement and attacks against any new religion. Not to mention the Manson cult murders that took place in the summer of 1969 also put organized ritualistic killing on the mind. So to summarize very loosely what sorta happened here, in the wake of horrific cults like the events at Jonestown in 1978, many Christians started banding together and taking their beliefs more seriously. But because they were understandably paranoid about cults and another Jonestown happening, many of these fundamentalists took this movement way too far and made baseless accusations in an attempt to squash beliefs that they perceived didn't align with their own. I'm not saying that all Christians at the time did this, but the moral majority and fundamentalism was a massive movement. This is an extremely simplified summary, and please don't think I'm trying to justify any of the damaging actions that came out of the satanic panic. 
This is just to provide a little bit of backstory so we can understand why this happened in the first place. So moving right along, let's get into the growth of Satanic Panic and how this gained notoriety so quickly. Another massive piece to the allegations of satanic ritual abuse was the fact that the moral majority believed children were involved. Around that time, a better understanding of child abuse was starting to emerge. In 1980, the American Psychiatric Association added PTSD to the third edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And the concept of trauma very slowly began becoming more understood. According to the Smithsonian, Project MKUltra began in 1953 and continued in various forms for more than 10 years. When the Watergate scandal broke, fear of discovery led the CIA to destroy most of the evidence of the program, but 20,000 documents were recovered through a Freedom of Information Act request in 1977, filed during a Senate investigation into Project MKUltra. The files revealed the experiments tested drugs like LSD, sensory deprivation, hypnotism, and electroshock on everyone from agency operatives to prostitutes, recovering drug addicts and prisoners, often without their consent. Needless to say, the idea of brainwashing cults and trauma were all still pretty new and terrifying. So when the book Michelle Remembers was released, people clung to it, seeing it as an answer to better understand child abuse. According to one source, a case of temporary global insanity. It all started with a single lurid Canadian book. You never see him all at once. He's always distorted and he's not quite substantial, more like a vapor. It turns to look at me and it's all uh, like all black. I'm scared, scared, I'm scared, goes the passage in Michelle Remembers describing Michelle Smith's encounter with Satan. Published in 1980 and written by Smith's psychiatrist, Lawrence Padzer, it is purported the true story of Smith's childhood as a prisoner of a satanic cult in Victoria in the mid 1950s. The entire book comes from 600 hours of Smith's testimony in Padzer's office, delivered in the voice of a child while she was in a trance-like state. In halting half sentences, Smith told Padzer of being driven into a satanic cult by her mother at five years old. You're not mine anymore, Michelle. You belong to the devil, her mother reportedly says. Over months of imprisonment, she is forced to drink urine, eat cannibalized flesh, bathe in the blood of dismembered babies, participate in ritual murders, and endure a cage filled with snakes and spiders. In the climax, Smith encounters Satan himself in a feast of the beast organized by her oppressors, but is ultimately saved by the direct intervention of the Virgin Mary. Even though Michelle Remembers has since been discredited, it was the earliest and most influential narrative of satanic ritual abuse. Padzer and Smith traveled across North America to promote their work, appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show, Donahue, Geraldo, and 2020. There was a sharp uptick in concern about child welfare, and this book proved parents' fears correct. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about your children or anything, but the claims, allegations, and paranoia were pervasive and baseless. High-profile talk shows and nightly news programs warned parents about the dangers of hard rock and heavy metal music, commonly thought to contain back-masked messages that when played in reverse would encourage listeners to hail Satan. The popularity of tabletop gaming systems like Dungeons and Dragons was likewise suspect as news programs like 2020 cautioned that such games might actually be intense occult training. For many late 20th century Americans, evil was not an abstract ethical concept. Evil was a material reality and it was coming for their kids. 
So first of all, Dungeons and Dragons and rock music are amazing. And if that's evil, then well, I don't wanna be good. Secondly, I'm really trying to sympathize and understand why parents may have been scared about cults, but listening to metal music isn't a cult thing. Like a cult has a lot more than just musical preference and role-playing. As ridiculous as this may sound now, it was taken to the extreme at that time. During the 80s, the Christian right founded organizations such as BADD, which stands for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. Bad made claims like linking role-playing games to youth suicide, drug use, and Satanism, though all these claims were later discredited. One source states, the moral panic in the United States and to a lesser extent in Australia and France directed against RPGs, especially Dungeons and Dragons, originated in the media response to the suicides of 16-year-old college sophomore, James Dallas Egbert III in August, 1980, and 16-year-old high school student, Irving Bink Pulling in June, 1982. Despite a wide range of psychological and social factors, such as drug addiction, a long history with chronic depression, confrontation with parents over sexual orientation, public humiliation in the school environment, and even doubts as to whether they had actually played any RPGs regularly, the media interpretation of the events was that the strange game of D&D was a crucial factor in their suicides. Additionally, Patricia Pulling, the mother of Bink Pulling, attempted to sue TSR, the manufacturer of Dungeons and Dragons, for the death of her son. The case was thrown out of court in 1984. Patricia must have been devastated, yes, but rather than raise awareness for depression, bullying, or addiction, she chose D&D as a scapegoat, which very well may have just been a coping mechanism or means of escape for her son. Still, hundreds of Michelles across the Western world were similarly recalling details of satanic ritual murder and abuse. One source claims this was largely the fault of a phenomenon known as false memory syndrome, in which patients under hypnosis can be led into fabricating elaborate false memories. Patterns emerged. Children suspected of being satanic abuse victims were asked leading questions by investigators. In one case in Rockdale, England, all it took was a small boy to tell his teachers he had been dreaming of ghosts. Soon, social service workers were taking children from their parents in the misguided belief that they were breaking up a satanic abuse ring. One afternoon in 1990, I got a call from my wife telling me our three kids had been taken away because of witchcraft and satanic abuse. I still can't believe this has happened, one of the parents, John Herzl, told The Guardian in 2006. Saskatoon police officer John Popowich was one of the adults falsely accused of running a satanist underground in Martinsville. Nobody can understand what we've gone through and what we're going through. Nobody can. One minute you're well-respected, the next minute you're an alleged monster, he told CBC in 1994. Yet the book Michelle Remembers has been shown to be a hoax by three independent investigators. It's unlikely Michelle suffered abuse and it seems as if Patzer knew this. Her reports have been described as the hysterical ravings of an uncontrolled imagination. Whether or not this is true, whether or not she may have a mental illness or if she was just making things up to have a laugh that you know people actually believed her, I've got no idea. But this is why you don't believe anecdotal evidence alone because things like this do happen. Now, as for accusations, one of the largest was against the McMartin preschool. This case has become particularly synonymous with the satanic panic. Most of the articles I found about that time period mention it in some way. 
One New York Times article states that starting in 1983 with accusations from a mother whose mental instability later became an issue in the case, the operators of a daycare center near Los Angeles were charged with raping and sodomizing dozens of small children. The trial dragged on for years, one of the longest and costliest in American history. In the end, as with the Scottish women, lives were undone, but no one was ever convicted of a single act of wrongdoing. Instead, some of the early allegations were so fantastic as to make many people wonder later how anyone could have believed them in the first place. Really now, teachers chopped up animals, clubbed a horse to death with a baseball bat, sacrificed a baby in church and made children drink blood, dressed up as witches and flew in the air. And all of this had been going on unnoticed for a good long while until a disturbed mother spoke up. And look, child abuse in daycares happens and it happens a lot more than it should because it should happen zero times. Neglect, verbal, and even physical abuse was found to have occurred in various forms throughout over 2000 daycares in 2017. However, chopping up animals, sacrificing a baby, and making children drink blood? Those are some hefty accusations, and I really, really doubt that this could happen in a daycare unnoticed or uncared about by anyone until one mother said, hey, gee, I don't think I want my kid beating animals to death. I know it's kind of ridiculous and even a little funny to imagine a time where Papa Smurf or Ronald McDonald was seen as the work of the devil because it's obviously nonsense. But the genuine accusations and court cases that happened at this time weren't at all a joke. Like this truly ruined lives. News organizations too share a blame in this, according to the New York Times. In the McMartin case, they were far from innocent observers. A pack mentality set in after a local television journalist first reported the allegations. Across California and beyond, normal standards of fairness and reason skepticism were routinely thrown to the wind, with news gatherers scrambling to outdo one another in finding purported examples of monstrous behavior by the defendants. Peggy McMartin Buckley and her son, Raymond Buckley. Miss Buckley, daughter of the school's founder, died at 74 in 2000. Raymond Buckley, now in his 50s, said years ago that he simply wanted to be left alone and he did not acknowledge Retro Report's request for an interview. It would be comforting to believe that mindlessly frenetic news coverage is a relic of the past, but who could make that claim with a straight face? Really, who could? Teachers grew afraid to hug their students out of fear of being misunderstood. People genuinely believed that 1,400 children had been ritually abused. Charges mounted on the evening news, the accusations became more and more bizarre. The CII or the Children's Institute International, a child abuse prevention center stepped in. They videotaped interviews with the preschoolers using puppets to try and get the kids to say what happened to them. Even though Buckley was released because there wasn't enough evidence against him, the police sent out a letter to about 200 families telling parents to question their children. Emotionally involved parents engaged in leading and suggesting questions with their kids. Cases were contaminated and it became impossible to learn the truth. The letter listed the possible criminal acts under investigation. The acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Buckley to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Buckley tie up a child, it's important. 
Considering that there was no evidence against Buckley at the time, I do believe this was grossly mishandled. The police could have easily just stated that the McMartin daycare was under investigation and that if parents had questions or believed their child may be a victim, they should contact authorities. But this is far from the only mishandling of the case, of course. The therapist at CII would ask children if they played any naked games at the school. And when kids say they didn't, the CII said, oh, you must not have a very good memory and refused to accept their answer. Some people defended Key McFarlane and the CII and her method of interviewing. Some say she teased information out because she has, quote, a perfected, a motherly down to earth reassuring method that allows a child to trust her. On the other hand, if you look into patterns of the interview, it's quite concerning. Dr. William McIver, a clinical psychologist, discussed the process by which children were indoctrinated by their social workers. In the Oregon Defense Attorney of June, July, 1985, McIver noted, "'Unfortunately, ways in which children are currently being interviewed in these cases are damaging to them because quite simply, they aren't being given the opportunity to tell the truth. Typically, it is the interviewer's need which are taken care of and not the child's. The story is told too often, the one the interviewer wants to hear and not the actual one. A typical interview by Key McFarlane may follow a similar pattern to this. Did somebody touch you in places that made you uncomfortable? No, you don't have to hide things from me. You can tell me anything you want to. It must be hard to tell real secrets, but you can trust me. What happened? Nothing. You don't have to be ashamed. It wasn't your fault. Did you get touched in your privates maybe? Well, maybe. Good, see how much better it is to tell the truth. I'm so proud of you. It really takes a brave girl to see these things. You're so big and strong, you can tell me the truth. Somebody touched you down in your privates? Yes. See, I told you, you don't have to be afraid. No one is going to hurt you anymore. I'm here to protect you and help you. You want to tell people this secret, don't you? Yes. Now tell me exactly what happened. They touched my private parts. Who touched you? I don't know. Come on, don't be afraid. Remember, you can tell me the truth. Did your daddy touch you? No. Couldn't he have touched you there sometimes? Maybe. Where were you when he touched you? In the garage. The interviewer asked leading questions and planted insinuations in the child's mind, which indicated the answers they wanted to hear. If the child responded negatively, the interviewer gave them negative feedback. If the child said anything remotely corresponding with the accusations, they were rewarded, sometimes with toys and candy, but always with verbal affirmation and praise. Even Key herself essentially admits to forcing these words out of children's mouths. She says that faltering acknowledgement occurs frequently, so she's trying to get them to trust her and say what happened. Yet such a firm no from this child from the onset shouldn't be doubted when there's absolutely no evidence to support any molestation occurring. Molestation is a serious crime. McFarlane might think that she's helping and supporting these kids, but she's putting words in their mouths and reading this interview makes me a little more infuriated than I thought it would. There's some of the interviews themselves included in the New York Times video, but it's, it's extremely frustrating to listen to, to be completely honest. Key McFarlane seems like she's the one traumatizing these kids more than the McMartin daycare workers that were being accused with no evidence to back it up. The fact is a new understanding of child sexual abuse was emerging and more common than Americans realized. People wanted to support kids, believe kids, and they may have had pure intentions, but they went about it the wrong way. It's one thing to listen to a child and report any concerning behavior to a professional, and I do support that. 
But if a child says there's nothing wrong and there's no evidence that something was wrong, to insist that they're just forgetting things and asking leading questions, it's a little bit despicable. On March 22nd, 1984, a grand jury indicted Ray Bucky, Peggy Bucky, Peggy Ann Bucky, Virginia McMartin, and three other McMartin teachers, Marianne Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler. The grand jury initially indicted the McMartin Seven on 115 counts of child sexual abuse. Two months later, an additional 93 indictment counts were added as District Attorney Robert Filibosian pursued his strategy of hyping the McMartin case. In June, bail for Peggy Bucky was set at $1 million. Ray Bucky was held without bail. This case, by the way, was an absolute garbage fire of a case without any evidence that even the prosecutors themselves began to doubt it. One prosecutor was quoted as saying, Key McFarlane could make a six month old baby say he was molested. Ray Bucky, one of the principal defendants, spent five years sitting in jail for a crime he didn't commit during one of the longest and most expensive criminal trials in American history. The government spent seven years and $15 million investigating and prosecuting this case when it led to no investigations. Ray Bucky in a CBS interview said, those poor children went through hell, but I'm not the cause of their hell and neither is my mother. The cause of their hell is the adults who took this case and made it what it was. Parents suffered too. Many felt betrayed by the justice system. The community of Manhattan Beach was another victim left uneasy and polarized by the long investigation and judicial proceedings. The effects of the McMartin trial even extended beyond the state of California. Across the country, daycare providers resisted the temptation to hug or touch children. Contact almost all children's experts might be interpreted as signs of abuse. Many daycare centers were forced to close their doors after insurance companies fearing molestation lawsuits dramatically raised liability insurance rates. Early publicity surrounding the McMartin investigation also spawned a rash of charges against daycare providers elsewhere, many of which proved to be unsubstantiated. All in all, I could go on about this case for ages because it was mishandled so incredibly that it's, it's so rage-inducing, it's almost unbelievable. But this was only one very large aspect of the fallout that occurred because of the satanic panic. There are far, far more cases and events that I do want to get into. The other massively well-known case around satanic panic and daycares was against the couple Fran and Dan Keller. Even though this trial wasn't as long or expensive, it's arguably just as horrific, if not worse, than the McMartin case because it led to the Kellers' wrongful conviction. One source writes that when the Kellers were convicted of sexual assault in 1992, children from the daycare were accused of them from everything, serving blood-laced Kool-Aid, wearing white robes, cutting the heart out of a baby, flying children to Mexico to be raped by soldiers, using Satan's arm as a paintbrush, burying children alive with animals, throwing them in a swimming pool with sharks, shooting them and resurrecting them after they had been shot. And we're listening now, right? And this sounds insane that like, if you heard this now, you'd be like, this is not real. This is no, 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 no. This is a click hole article, but this was legit stuff at the time. And people were actually seriously concerned this was really happening. Like seriously, flying children to Mexico to be sexually abused. Like how could that even be possible for a daycare to do in a day? Like just from the logistics standpoint alone, like that's just not possible. 
But panic seems like too understated a word here. And yet both Fran and Den Keller spent over 21 years in prison before a court released them in 2013 after journalists and lawyers worked tirelessly to prove their innocence. The stories at the time were a lot like what we heard in the McMartin case as well and equally sensationalized without proof. Terror at the daycare blared the Vancouver Sun in 1992 in prose typical of early coverage of the Kellers. It didn't look like a haunted house, but the kids knew better. Fran's daycare center actually looked entirely charming as described by Texas Monthly in one of the few measured stories from that era. Opened in 1989, it had cages of rabbits and a pony named Dancer, a playground and a swimming pool tucked into a leafy Austin neighborhood. As tidy and pastoral as a cottage in a fairy tale, Texas Monthly wrote. The couple lived at the same house, Fran in her 40s and Dan in his 50s, and cared for about 15 children each day, including some who had histories of emotional problems and abuse. One day in 1991, Fran recalled in an interview with KXAN, only two children were dropped off. Then police knocked on the door and sat with her in the kitchen. They told me Dan was accused of hurting a child, she said, and I knew that couldn't be true. What began as a single accusation from a three-year-old girl with known behavioral problems, Texas Monthly wrote, escalated to monstrous proportions after authorities closed the daycare. Worried parents sent their children to therapists where they came back with tales pulled straight from horror movies. According to history.com, all this stemmed from a three-year-old girl that accused Dan of spanking her, but she later alleged rape after further questioning. Let me make it clear here that I don't blame the children, but the therapists at the time. Given what we saw from CII earlier, I wouldn't be surprised if the questions were incredibly leading and she gave a false conviction. Again, I do wanna make it incredibly clear that I'm not saying I don't believe the children. On the contrary, if a child says they were spanked, believe that they were spanked and look for evidence to back that claim up or don't put your child in that daycare anymore. But if a child doesn't say a word about being raped, to put those words into their mouth is criminal. This isn't a case of parents believing or not believing their kids. Hell, according to one source, the little girl even recanted in the courtroom, though the Kellers were still convicted. The Austin Chronicle reads, on the witness stand, the little girl sat on her older sister's lap, chewing on a lollipop. Did Danny ever touch you in a way you didn't like? Assistant District Attorney Judy Shipway asked. No, Christina replied. Did Fran ever touch you in a way you didn't like? Shipway asked. No, the girl replied. Shipway tried a different approach. Did Christina tell anyone else that Danny had hurt her? She did not reply. Shipway asked if Christina would like to whisper to me her answer. No, she said. Christy, when you say no, do you mean you don't want to talk about it or do you mean no, it didn't happen? Shipway asked. No, it didn't happen, Christina replied once. And then again, no, it didn't happen. But did you tell somebody it happened? Shipway asked. Yes, 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 she answered. Fran held her head in her hands. All the emotion of the last year and a half welled up. Finally, she thought everyone in the courtroom had heard the truth. Nothing had happened. Fran felt a measure of relief. Certainly this whole ordeal would soon be over, but that's not what happened. Instead, Fran and Danny Keller were each convicted of sexually assaulting Christina Chaviers and each was sentenced to 48 years in prison. For the Kellers, now 58 and 68 respectively, it was effectively a life sentence. Thankfully, Dan and Fran are free as of today. Although Fran is 67 and Dan is 76, they're both due to receive $3.4 million from the government for their wrongful imprisonment. 
but I'm sure they would much rather have those 21 years back. It's moments like these that quite frankly, make me lose faith in the justice system. Fran seems hopeful. She's glad they don't have to worry about pinching pennies and that they can start living without nightmares. I'm thrilled that they're released, absolutely. But it's such a shame that this even happened in the first place. Also, if you are curious to read more on this case, Texas Monthly has a massive article on the topic and it's fascinating. There were many other stories of sexual abuse being released at the time. These were two of the most notable. One source states, In 1980 in Bakersfield, California, social workers had been reading the just published Michelle Remembers as part of their training when a number of children came forward to declare they had been molested as part of a clandestine local occult sex ring. Two of the girls had been coached by a grandparent who was believed to have a history of mental illness. Over the coming months, their story of strange occult sex acts would grow more and more bizarre as they claimed to have been hung from hooks in their family's living room, forced to drink blood and watch ritual baby sacrifices and much more. The fact that these social workers were reading that now disproven story as part of their training, well, I really, really hope social workers aren't made to read that type of nonsense now. And at least don't read it and not fact check it and just go, yeah, this is totally fact. And then making it a training requirement because this just seems insane that that was a thing. Between 1984 and 1986, the investigation into these labyrinths claims of satanic ritual abuse would send at least 26 people to jail in interrelated convictions, despite a complete lack of corroborative physical evidence for any of the claims. Nearly all of those convictions have since been overturned, including that of a local carpenter named John Stoll, who spent 20 years of his 40-year sentence in jail. Parents Scott and Brenda Kiffin were each sentenced to 240 years in jail after their own sons were coached through coercive investigative techniques and over-eager therapists to accuse them of child molestation. Both children later recanted and the Kiffins were released after serving 12 years in prison. As adults, several of the children involved in the trials professed to having been traumatized by their own earlier false testimony and subsequent damage it caused. Aside from the unfounded accusations against daycares, there were also some wild conspiracies going around, many of them even coming from the mouths of people we considered professionals at the time. One man, Dr. Hammond, with a PhD in counseling psychology, publicized a detailed theory of ritual abuse drawn from the hypnotherapy sessions with his patients. He alleged that they were a victim of a worldwide conspiracy headed by the CIA. One speech of his, the Green Bomb speech given in 1992 is available online and in it, Hammond states, here's where it appears to have come from. At the end of World War II, before it even ended, Alan Dulles and people from our intelligence community were already in Switzerland making contact to get out Nazi scientists. As World War II ends, they not only get out rocket scientists, but they also get out some Nazi doctors who have been doing mind control research in the camps. They brought them to the United States. Along with them was a young boy, a teenager, who had been raised as a Hasidic Jew tradition and a background of Kabbalistic mysticism that probably appealed to people in the cult because at least by the turn of the century, Aleister Crowley had been introducing Kabbalism into satanic stuff, if not earlier. I suspect it may have been formed some bond between them, but he saved his skin by collaborating and being an assistant to them in the death camp experiments. They brought him with them. They started doing mind control research for military intelligence in military hospitals in the United States. The people that came, the Nazi doctors were Satanists. 
Subsequently, the boy changed his name, Americanized it some, obtained an MD degree, became a physician, and continued the work that appears to be at the center of the cult programming today. His name is known to patients throughout the country. Basically, in the programming, the child will be put typically on a gurney. They will have an IV in one hand or arm. They'll be strapped down, typically naked. There will be wires attached to their head to monitor patterns. They will see a pulsing light, most often described as red, occasionally white or blue. They'll be given most commonly, I believe, Demerol. Sometimes it'll be other drugs as well, depending on the kind of programming. They have it, I think, down to a science where they've learned you give so much every 25 minutes until the programming is done. They then will describe a pain in one ear, their right ear generally, where it appears a needle has been placed and they will hear weird disorientating sounds in that ear while they see photic stimulation to drive the brain into a brainwave pattern with a pulsing light at a certain frequency, not unlike the goggles that are now available through Sharper Image and some of those kinds of stores. Then after a suitable period when they're in a certain brainwave state, they will begin programming, programming orientated to self-destruction and debasement of the person. In a patient at this point in time, about eight years old, who has gone through a great deal early programming took place on a military installation. That's not uncommon. And I really do apologize. I tried to summarize those massive paragraphs of word vomit, but I just didn't know how to. I didn't wanna cut out anything he said because yes, this is what he was saying to convince people, but like, it's just, it's utter bullshit. In a way, it's sort of reassuring to know that outlandish conspiracy theories have always existed. At least I'm not alone in being utterly exhausted by them. But on the other hand, this is so disheartening to know what people are willing to believe with very little or no evidence. And that little selection that I read, that's only a few paragraphs out of the 19 pages of this Dr. Hammond speech and interviews that he took part in. Not only was it these medical professionals, and I use that term as loosely as possible here, but it was the mainstream media as well. Geraldo hosted a special before Halloween in 1988 called Devil Worship, Exploring Satan's Underground, where he discussed how Satanism would butcher infants, breed babies for later sacrifice, ritually sexually abuse children, mutilate infants, drink blood, dismember corpses, spark cannibal cults and sex orgies. Pretty sure that last one isn't illegal and involving actual murder, obviously. Like, you get the point. This was literally and legitimately presented to the public as reality, as something that was actively happening without actually questioning if these satanic murders were even occurring in the first place. One episode of the Geraldo show featured three women who disclosed horrendous memories of their victimization as young children. They recalled being tortured sexually and psychologically almost from the time that they first learned to walk. They had repressed these memories for decades until the recollections began to be restored during the recovered memory therapy. They were called being forced to torture other children. One woman claimed that she had murdered 40 children during satanic rituals in the presence of her family. In late 1991, comedian Roseanne Arnold disclosed to her audience of incest victims in Denver, Colorado, that her parents had abused her when she was under the age of 12 months. Her story received massive publicity and prompted a denial by the rest of her family. If these events actually happened, then the memories from infancy by Roseanne and other women would be unique. Researchers into memory have concluded that true memories before the age of three are very rare and that such memories before the age of 24 months are unknown. 
It's as if the actual claims that were hurled at people weren't bad enough and Geraldo and many aspects of the media had to take it just one step further for those sweet, sweet ratings. I'm not saying never trust the media. They do often lie and exaggerate everything. Simply that in this specific case, they presented no evidence to back up these claims. Everything that I've seen thus far, all this proof that they brought forward was anecdotal. And even much of the evidence, at least when it came to the testimony of these kids that were asked such leading questions was not reliable. Poorly trained therapists and uninformed paranoid parents, in my opinion, were largely to blame for this scare occurring in the first place. But the way people took these stories and ran with it without even questioning it for a moment is incredibly upsetting. Like, how could you all let this happen? Now, before we get into talking about recanting and how people eventually were proven wrong and people had to recant their stories and admit they were wrong, let's take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Today's episode is actually sponsored by me. So hello, welcome to the break segment by me featuring me. Well, more specifically, it's sponsored by my merch shop. Multilevelmerch.shop is the place to find everything you need to support the show. We've got hoodies and sweatshirts and sweatshirts are my personal favorite, to be totally honest. I think I own pretty much all of them at this point. Mugs and even phone cases in so many amazing designs. Maybe you want your own Yikes on Trikes designs or join the Carb Crusaders. Either way, just make sure you stay a good noodle. And yes, there's designs for that too. And we ship internationally, so make sure to check it out. Again, that's multilevelmerch.shop. Geraldo did eventually apologize for this, by the way, in 1995. Many people changed their minds around this time too about the whole satanic panic shenanigans. He stated on CNBC, I want to announce publicly that as a firm believer of the Believe the Children movement of the 1980s that started with the McMartin trials in California, but now I am convinced that I was terribly wrong and many innocent people were convicted and went to prison as a result. And I am equally positive that the repressed memory therapy movement is also a bunch of crap. This shouldn't have been called a Believe the Children movement in the first place, considering that the therapists interviewing the children in the McMartin trials were legitimately feeding them lies and not believing them. Many people did start apologizing in the mid 90s though, after this daycare sex abuse hysteria died down though. It started to end thanks to HBO's made for TV movie, Indictment, the McMartin trial, a story that recast Ray Bucky as the victim that he genuinely was. The Washington Post wrote an article about it at the time and the court system turned on those responsible for these lies. In 1996, Dr. Tesson was sued for implanting false memories of satanic ritual abuse in an adult patient. The lawsuit revealed Tesson to have consulted multiple experts in satanic ritual abuse over the years and to have been obsessed with the subject since the time of the Glendale trial. This Glendale trial was yet another satanic ritual abuse case in Florida in 1989. In 1993, the West Memphis Three, a small group of teenagers had been accused and convicted of the sexual assault and murders of three young boys, despite there being a lack of any physical evidence linking them to the crime. They were accused based on their Gothic lifestyles and for supposedly worshiping Satan, even though surprisingly, there was no evidence that they did that either. The three men were freed in 2011 after DNA evidence showed that they had no connection to the killings. In 1992, the Department of Justice thoroughly debunked the myth of the ritualistic satanic sex abuse cult. But though allegations of satanically motivated child abuse rituals had pretty much died out by the mid 1990s, 
law enforcement continued to treat Satan as a potential crime indicator. As we see this in the 1994 police training video, The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults. The video that Vox has in this article is honestly pretty funny to look at now because it's all speculation about the Satanists in the community based on graffiti alone. But when we consider how law enforcement really did treat people in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and how they still treat people now, it's really not that funny. One four-year study in the early 1990s found that allegations of satanic ritual abuse were without merit. The study was conducted by University of California at Davis psychology professors Gail S. Goodman and Philip R. Shaver in conjunction with Jian Jiang Kin of UC Davis and Betty I. Bottoms of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Their study was supported by the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect. The researchers investigated more than 12,000 accusations and surveyed more than 11,000 psychiatric, social service, and law enforcement personnel. The researchers could find no unequivocal evidence for a single case of satanic cult ritual abuse. A study published in 1992 by Kenneth V. Lanning, a supervisory special agent at the FBI Academy, came to the same conclusion. There is no good evidence for a single case of SRA. Lanning has investigated SRA since 1981. 23 convictions were reversed because of this satanic panic, whether daycare workers or simply those that were a victim of this baseless witch hunt. This tore apart families, communities, and absolutely ruined lives. Considering how long it took for so many of these decisions to even be reversed, all of this only ended just recently. And just to clarify, I'm not saying that no one has ever done anything horrible in Satan's name. The infamous Night Stalker serial killer claimed to be a Satanist and he killed many people in the 80s terrorizing California. However, the point here is that the idea that there were common ritualistic abuse cases in Satan's name was an absolute conspiracy. The satanic panic was taken way, way too far, and it was an overreaction to a number of things. Conspiracy theories like this may be especially bad right now after the mess of the year that was 2020, but it genuinely surprised me to hear just how deep this went. As much as I want to think this couldn't happen, well, crazier things have already happened. I mean, look at QAnon for God's sake. It's literally history repeating itself again with the same stupid narratives. I guess the message here is simply that you can't let emotion control you completely because you'll make some dumb decisions and you can really hurt people around you. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you want to see more content from me or connect with me outside of these episodes, you can always click my Linktree link in the description box. It'll give you a nice little easy list to look through of all my social media and other projects that I'm involved in. So thank you all for making it to another episode. Love you, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.